Uh, I want to uh, say how grateful I am to Lucy Fint, uh, who's going to join me tonight, and we're going to do a joint talk on the uh, eighth uh, grave precept uh, of taking up the way of not sparing uh, the Dharma assets, and we're going to try not to, uh, to let the precept down tonight. <laughs> um, but rather to, to enjoy uh, what this precept uh, actually offers us. Uh, I'll begin by saying a few words and give a little bit of context, um, and then I'll invite uh, Lizzie to join to, to do her part of the talk. And I won't disclose the contents of that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, the, uh, we're, we're over the last two years now, I think, maybe longer, been doing a series of talks on the precepts and we've reached the eighth of the ten grave precepts and uh, uh, these include the precepts of not killing, not stealing, not misusing sex, not speaking falsely, um, uh, not speaking of the faults of others, not praising oneself while abusing others, uh, not sparing the Dharma assets, uh, not indulging in anger, and um, not defaming the three three treasures. Um, all of the precepts, uh, including not sparing the Dharma assets, are expressions of how you uh, actually live the way in your life. Um, there are expressions of um, how you take refuge, how you find your home in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Um, they are expressions of uh, enlightened mind. Uh, they are how you put the way into action. Um, so they're immensely important. Uh, each of the precepts has um, uh, a short verse, uh, the first by Bodhidharma and the second by Dogen. And when the student uh, takes the precepts, we chant these uh, verses. And I, I want to give my, my first acknowledgement of not sparing the Dharma assets to Aiken Roshi, who translated these, um, uh, these verses. And it's a matter of, of great joy uh, to me that we are in a tradition which um, uh, is uh, so beautiful uh, in terms of how language is used to convey the way. Uh, Aiken Roshi uh, and John Tarrant were masters uh, uh, of this. Um, with the uh, Aiken Roshi is acknowledged through his books, but um, more privately through his translation of the Khan literature. Um, if you memorise the koan, um, the rhythm um, already, in a way, has you engaged because the poetry is important. Um, it opens the heart. Uh, it engages you at, at the deepest level. And uh, I am grateful uh, to my two teachers, uh, Aiken Roshi and John Tarrant, for that. So here are the verses, uh, first by Bodhidharma. Soft nature is subtle and mysterious in the genuine, all-pervading Dharma, not being stingy about a single thing. 
is called the precept of not sparing the Dharma assets. Um, I'm going to take the word Dharma and uh, each of these is going to be a different aspect of it rather than trying to do a big definition uh, but rather take little uh, aspects of this vast matter of the Dharma. Dharmas are the things of the world. the events of the world, uh, the particulars. Uh, uh, each day uh, offers itself unconcerned whether we're there for it or not. The sun rises, the moon fades, a little breeze starts up. Uh, even in the midst of unhappiness and alienation, the planets align. You can even see Mercury, the faintest of them in that uh, curve if you got up around four o'clock in the morning. Our breath rises and falls regardless of what we think about it. Our heart beats regardless. Our blood circulates regardless of our opinions about it. Even the unnoticed moment offers itself. Uh, the lamp doesn't decide on whom uh, she will shine. The rose offers herself her reds, her pinks, her scent to us all, regardless. So we live in a universe which, which doesn't spare the Dharma assets, not even for an instant. In Bodhidharma's verse he says, not being stingy about a single thing is called the precept of not sparing the Dharma assets. So I was just thinking about this this morning and writing and then the phone rang and it was a call, a charity call. And uh, the timing was kind of impeccable because I was just writing, don't be stingy about anything, and the phone rang. So I picked up the phone and... Uh, <laughs> we thank you for your contribution last year. And uh, it's like, oh... Um, Maybe it's someone else's turn <laughs> if I contributed last year. Uh, that this feeling rises unbidden. Um, but I'm writing, don't be stingy about a thing, so their timing was impeccable, so I bought the raffle tickets. And, uh, um, okay, dharmas are also teaching. You know, dharma is the teaching itself. And uh, where do you start? Um, but uh, this little verse, uh, grey clouds gather in the empty sky of my mind. The kookaburra sings in my heart. All things are my teacher. Uh, coming down from China, but uh, curiously relevant in Australia. Yeah. In emptiness, all things gather. Then we can say the kookaburra sings in my heart, or the lorikeet sings in my heart, uh, the magpie sings in my heart, uh, the crow calls as my heart. In that way, uh, all things are our teacher. Bodhidharma's uh, words uh, convey this in the genuine, all-pervading dharma, not stingy, being stingy about a single thing is called the precept of not sparing the dharma assets. There is no stinginess at all. Uh, 
the universe does its job beyond explanation, moment to moment. Uh, uh, teachers give it a nudge along. But uh, uh, classic redundancy of teachers, you know, saying, you know, flapping your lips for 40 years about the Dharma, and it's pouring forth moment by moment. Um, and each of us teachers teach. Uh, we all teach. We all convey the way. Uh, the example I have come back to so many times, but I, it still feels inexhaustible um, of the uh, young woman standing at the head of the Doxan line waiting to go to Doxan, and uh, a student at the head of the line uh, having a, a realisation experience and saying, but she was just standing there, but she was just standing there in amazement, but she was just standing there. The genuine all-pervading Dharma shows the boundless generosity of the universe coming forth in its fullness. We are not simply our body. We are not bounded by our skin and our skull. We are all that boundless generosity and it includes us all. And in the same breath, we embody it all right here now. Just this. Just this. nowhere else to be uh, looking. There's a great story. Because the spirit of giving um, is intimately bound up with money. Dharma of money is a subtle and business. Um, there's this great story from uh, Mind of Clover from uh, uh, Roshi's uh, Taisho on this precept. It goes, um, he says, the assets of the Dharma include money, the test of pure spirit. And uh, he tells this story. The important thing is attitude, to be pure in giving or receiving something as pure as the act of standing up. It goes on, when Sesetsu Kokushi was Roshi at Engaku Monastery at Kamakura, the dojo needed to be rebuilt to accommodate the large number of monks who had gathered to practice. A wealthy merchant brought 500 pieces of gold, which is an immense amount of money uh, for this purpose for the purpose of the rebuilding of the dojo. According to the version that Roshi heard from Nakagawa Soen Roshi, uh, Seizetsu um, Zenji, uh, when the merchant presented the money, just said, uh, okay, I'll take it. The merchant was miffed. And he said, uh, in that sack there are 500 pieces of gold. Uh, and Sesetsu said, you already told me that. And went back to the game of Go that he was playing. Okay. 
uh, Meister Eckhart said, uh, to give a thousand marks of gold to build a church or a cloister would be a great thing, but to give a thousand marks for nothing at all would be a far greater gift. That's the true spirit of not sparing the Dharma assets. It's very interesting because gratitude is implicit in such free giving. Uh, gratitude for the opportunity to give, to contribute. Um, gratitude for being one among the many uh, who freely give. Uh, even sitting itself feels like an act of undirected gratitude. Uh, just to sit. Uh, gratitude without an object, gratitude without a direction. Uh, gratitude without expectation of reward. Uh, the teacher Amy Hollowell uh, has this beautiful koan. She asks, who benefits from your generosity? Who benefits from your generosity? There are limits though. Uh, if you can't set limits, you finally can't be generous. If we exhaust ourselves, we become useless to others. Uh, the archetype of the 1,000-armed bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, comes to mind here. Uh, all her hands and arms are used to help suffering beings. The practical expression of this is eyes to see, hands to do, in terms of, the, of uh, work in Sangha, for instance. Uh, eyes to see, hands to do. But uh, Kuan Yin, with her thousand arms, in the middle of each hand is an eye. And the eye is the eye of uh, wisdom. the wisdom to see deeply into our human condition and nature, to apprehend the subtle and mysterious dimensions of our self-nature. At the same time, this wisdom is discriminating wisdom, the wisdom to work out what is possible for us to do given our energy and what we can't possibly do given that we are exhausted. Okay, so the, the, eye is the eye of discrimination as well. Huge generosity um, and careful discrimination. Uh, discriminating wisdom is concerned with formulating priorities and working with the triage of everyday life. Uh, in this, the soldier dying of gangrene has a higher priority than the colonel's headache. If you can't set limits, you can't be generous. The precepts are, are not only about opening us to boundlessness, but also about um, boundaries themselves. The fact that the precepts are framed in the negative shows this. Take up the way of not killing. Take up the way of not stealing. Sometimes we say no to protect the integrity of, uh, well, in this case, the teacher-student relationship. I remember many years ago getting a phone call from a student who wanted to learn accordion uh, from me. And 
we talked on the phone and she had an accordion and uh, we set a fee for the lessons and then she turned up for her first lesson and she turned up, she said, look, I'm sorry, um, look, uh, I don't have any money, but um, here's some chocolate chip cookies. Um, it's, it's very nice and chocolate chip cookies were good. Um, but she also turned up for her second lesson and then her third lesson with chocolate chip uh, <laughs> cookies. Uh, I finally had to say to her, my, my bank manager doesn't accept chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Uh, and the lesson stopped abruptly at that point. Um, so uh, saying no, uh, setting limits. Uh, you know, when we are in contact with the Dharma, uh, generosity springs, I think, naturally from that relationship. But the experience of realising one's self-nature is, is the fount of not sparing the Dharma assets. Hakun, after many awakening experiences, could give Taisho all day. He was alive for whoever came before him and he had creativity to burn. Here's a little story. Um, uh, a soldier came to Hakun and asked, is there really a paradise and hell? Who are you? inquired Hakuan. Good question, <laughs> in any context. I am a samurai, the warrior replied. You, a samurai, explained Hakuan. What kind of ruler would have you as his guard? Your face looks like that of a beggar. The soldier became so angry that he began to draw his sword, but Hakuan continued. So you have a sword. Your weapon is probably as dull as your mind. As the soldier drew his sword, Hakuan remarked, Here open the gates of hell. At those words, the samurai, perceiving the discipline of the master, sheathed his sword and bowed. Here open the gates of paradise, said Hakuan. With regard to realising our self-nature and the generosity arising from that experience, Shakespeare's line from Romeo and Juliet are so expressive of the generosity that flows uh, when your heart opens, when the way opens. My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both mm. are infinite. The more I give to thee, the more I have. Um, that's the richness uh, of not sparing the Dharma assets. We are not depleted by it. We are never used up. Uh, rather, uh, we are enriched beyond our dreams. What we give is infinite too. Even the smallest act, even a mere word, is permeated with that vastness. Dogen does the second of the verses on the precept and uh, he writes, one phrase, one verse, that is the 10,000 things and 100 grasses. One dharma, one realisation, that is all Buddhas and ancestral teachers. Therefore from the beginning there has been no stinginess at all. It beautifully complements Bodhidharma's thing. So, you know, don't be stingy. 
and then burst again from the very beginning. There is no stinginess at all. Uh, the 10,000 things is what the Chinese, the metaphor they use to uh, represent everything. Uh, one phrase, one verse, everything is in that. 100 grasses, well the grasses stand for thinking and uh, conception and conceptualising and also delusions and attachments. So, uh, <coughs> it's quite witty actually because he's saying um, uh, one phrase, one verse, uh, everything gathers as that. Um, uh, but also the, all of the um, delusions and attachments also gather as well. Uh, no stinginess at all from the beginning. No meanness, uh, generosity, gain, lack, uh, richness, poverty. In that vastness, uh, that is the greatest generosity of all. Uh, on that uh, one phrase, uh, one verse, uh, even one word is enough. Uh, Mary Ridwin uh, is teaching in our, our Sankha and coming to do a training period here in April. Well, Mary and Glenn Wallace and Arthur Wells and I were giving an evening of short talks for students in Glenn Wallace's dojo in Dunedin uh, after Sashin. Uh, I gave a little talk, like, give a little 10 minute talk. I gave one on gratitude, which was warmed by the fact that I had mislaid my wallet several times that day and found it again. Each time I had it back in my hand, I'd mumble, thank you, universe. I continued, I'm sure there must be a better way to express that. Mary chimed in, thank you. <laughs> Just that, <laughs> thank you. Why go thank you, universe? <laughs> I'm in danger of explaining here and I won't. Thank you. Uh, and thank you gathers up everything. Uh, thank you. And I will hand over to Lizzie. I'm just going to bring Lipton in front of me. Please sit comfortably if you are not already <coughs> sitting comfortably. <coughs> well, hi everybody. Hi, and it's great to have a, a full house tonight. Um, Ross has uh, spoken about generosity of spirit. In, in his talk on not sparing the Dharma assets. And uh, this precept is very much related to the talk I'm going to give now on Samu, which describes ideas that the, the voluntary council now running uh, our group's activities and, and Ross have started to look at. 
And this is with a view to ensuring the future longevity of our group as an active and, and thriving community for Zen practice and learning. And also in that way to benefit every member of our Sangha and members to come. The Sangha itself is, is actually one of the greatest Dharma assets. It's a place where we have the opportunity to deepen our understanding of interdependence and to learn compassion and wisdom. And Samu is actually an ideal avenue for this learning. And sometimes I can tell you it's not easy. It can truly be a case of stones rubbing together to become smooth. At other times, it feels really good and can be full of, of humor and fun. Some of you here tonight will have experienced a rich taste of Samu at the recent Australia Day session. That sense of working in community with, with care and mindfulness to benefit all session participants. Whether it was cooking, serving, chopping, arranging flowers, washing up, cleaning the toilets, or being a leader, all of these roles were directed toward the goal of benefiting the session community. A, a jigsaw of roles, really, which was designed to enable participants to be free to settle comfortably and focus on their practice. I had a sense at the session, both personally and communally, communally of of people joining in with a great spirit of generosity and helpfulness and care. And many seemed to truly get a buzz out of working in and for community. Samu is also a great learning ground, whether it's session or, or within the everyday running of the Sangha. I'd like to tell you a story which I personally experienced with Samu at a session early on in my practice. It, it's a story which offered me a, a mirror of learning and, and great humor in the solution of a, a dilemma. And at that time, I, I was rather a rebellious Zen student. I was given the task of porridge cook at session or breakfast cook, making porridge, and I thoroughly enjoyed the task. I was experimenting successfully with cinnamon and other spices to give the porridge a, a real tang. And one morning as I was stirring the porridge and at one with the porridge, the Tenzo for the session called Graham came up to me with a small saucepan containing old porridge from the day before and asked me to combine this porridge into my beautiful fresh cinnamon aromad porridge. I continued to stir silently while thinking, no way are you going to put that old porridge into my lovely fresh porridge but I responded in a whisper, it's not appropriate. <laughs> the Tenzo disappeared and I continued stirring for a few minutes when I looked down and a hand appeared out of nowhere um, in, in front of me on another gas burner with that small saucepan of old porridge. And silence prevailed for a few seconds as I considered this dilemma and then suddenly I saw the, the humor and absurdity of my territorial approach to porridge and thought, ah, oh, what the hell, I'll let him put it in. And so I did, and, and, and all was well, and I narrowly escaped the hell realms. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, the, the word samu derives from two words in Japanese, sa for work and mu meaning to devote your attention to something. And in traditional Zen monasteries, samu is work that encourages mindfulness and great importance is played, placed on working for the community. Zen masters were known to value and, and practice samu diligently. Um, Hakuin Zenji, who we venerate in our sutras, was one of the most important Japanese Zen masters in the Rinzai school in the 17th and 18th century. He said that meditation in the midst of activity was a thousand times superior to meditation in stillness. And he believed that great action is doing what needs to be done and losing yourself in the act of uniting with the task at hand. The action of doing what needs to be done was seen as voluntary and as a form of generosity. Our Diamond Sangha founder, Robert Aitken Roshi, wrote that without Samu, Zen Buddhism would be a cult isolated from daily life. Samu is bodhisattva work in the world. The great challenge of the Zen way is taking what we learn in our practice on the cushion and with the teacher out into the world of activity. And Samu offers this opportunity along with our daily lives, our jobs and our relationships. In Zen monasteries, Samu also has a history as an essential means of maintaining the monastery while practicing mindfulness. And work as a critical element of Zen practice began in monasteries with the 8th century Chinese master Hakujo. He used to labor with his students, even at the age of 80, trimming the gardens, cleaning the grounds, and pruning the trees. And one day the pupils felt sorry to see their old teacher working so hard, but they knew he wouldn't listen to their advice to stop. So they hid away his tools and that day he stopped eating and wouldn't eat the next day or the next. His students believed he was angry because they'd hidden his tools and put them back. And on the day they returned the tools, Hakujo worked and ate the same as before. And that evening during Taisho, he instructed them, no work, no food. Our Zen group is a lay community, and here it's more a case of no work, no regular practice, no teaching, and no training opportunities. No session. The Samu tasks in the everyday running of our group inevitably differ from those at a Zen monastery, but they're just as essential. Currently, most of these tasks are carried out by the voluntary uh, group council with Ross's participation and guidance and I'm on this council this year and we're a group of usually around six volunteers who meet monthly for a meeting taking up a weekend morning. If you've been here a while you'll know that the group and our teachers are currently putting on a really rich program of activities including for this year, two extended session, an extended new training event this April, five one days of Zenkai talks, Taishos, 
weekly practice, frequent dokusen, and fundraising and social events. In my fairly long-term experience on council over many years, on and off since 2000, the ability to offer such a rich and beneficial program depends very much on how the council is faring, the Zen council is faring. Sometimes it's been hard to find more than four members to sit on council, and sometimes some members have been un unable to offer much time. Then the group energy can tend to dwindle and, and things fall off. At other times like now, we've got a really committed and enthusiastic team who are putting in many hours of work. Council has tended to undertake just about all the many tasks needed to be done to keep the ZGWA wheels rolling. Apart from uh, our long-serving member, Paul Wilson, who turns up rain or shine every week to set up the dojo. The trouble with this tendency to do most of the tasks is threefold. Council members can burn out, and when council members who give many hours of work step down after two years, it can leave a huge gap which may not be filled. And most important is the fact that when council does just about everything, it really disempowers the Sangha. How can Sangha members learn about doing what needs to be done if they don't get the opportunity to do it? And how can they benefit from this very real opportunity to engage and to deepen wisdom and compassion? I'm going to have a drink anyway, sorry, excuse me. I'd like here to include a Samu story with humour from a sort of Zen agony aunt discussion website that I came across. A Zen student asked about Samu in a piece which he entitled Confessions of a Wayward Zen Buddhist. The student wrote, I've read that in Zen any activity performed in a mindful way can lead to enlightenment. That means mowing the lawn or scrubbing bathroom tiles can be a path to enlightenment, just as sitting meditation is. But I find that my mind wanders to say the least when doing tasks called Samu. I'd much rather meditate or read sutras or light incense sticks. Anything but peel potatoes or do the cleaning. Do you have any advice for a somewhat wayward Zen practitioner with this kind of aversion. Is Zen the wrong path for me? The response to his plea was, it may well be the wrong path, but you might consider that any path you take is going to involve doing things that you would prefer not to do. If what you do agrees with your preferences 100% of the time, how would it be possible to learn anything? And here I will add that at times, making time to perform Samu task is quite a commitment and can seem hard and, and time-consuming. Unlike this student, I've had quite a few Sangha members here coming up to me to, to say they would like to help more in the running of the Sangha and to let them know what they can do. Well, here goes. There are many useful tasks that the Sangha can help with. 
Some of them require little time, like putting out the literature and incense and CDs before the regular weekly sit at the back of the hall. Others need more time, like rostering for one month to come early on Thursdays around 6pm to help set up the dojo and staying at the end to finalise closing it. There's a Zendo care and, and repair task looking after tea supplies and mending zafus and zabatons when needed, as well as every now and again washing our black drapes and altar cloths here and in the Dokusan room and the teacher's Dokusan water serviette. There's also the task of helping council members if there's a large mail-out or other large admin task. And fundraising via a couple of events a year is another very important task. Also, if you're interested in, in uh, sitting on council, every year at our AGM you can put, put your name forward. And um, as well as that, if, if you want to, if you feel ready to, to train for one of the leadership roles, just let one of the leaders know and, and at some, at some time um, that training will, will take place. We, we, we're always looking for uh, leaders for our regular sits. I must um, really emphasize, we're really aware that just about everyone here leads very busy lives, some with full-time jobs, and for some of you it may not be possible to volunteer. And that's just as it is and completely okay. However, if you would like to and are able to engage more in the running of our Zen group, so it becomes a community that we share a part in running, that would be really welcome. I'll close this Samu talk by saying that at the back of the dojo on green paper, there's a list of Samu tasks that can be undertaken by the Sangha. And if you'd like to put your name down against any or many of the several tasks listed that you would be willing to do, that gives us the chance to sort it all out so that each volunteer gets just one task. And we intend to rotate tasks over time and to draw up relevant rosters as soon as we can. Our Sangha is already thriving as a community and your contribution to everyday Samu tasks would be enormously helpful towards ensuring that this continues for years to come. We have a vision of this kind of lay Samu becoming a living and ongoing part of our community. It will boost our sense of traveling the way together and learning together and create an ongoing space for future bodhisattvas to benefit from Zen practice. <laughs>